This week on Writers, Inc. You sit there and sometimes you come up with your own surprises while you're writing. You know, I don't know how you are, Jay, but, you know, when I'm writing, I try to have some idea of what's going to be happening. But I'll just say, hey, wait a second, wouldn't this be awesome? And I could change something fundamental about the character when I'm on page 100 and say, you know, I'm going to have to make some other changes, but it makes everything else so much cooler. That's the fun part for me, when because I know I'm going to be playing a game with the reader, right? I think of it as a game. I think, you know, the reader is going to sit there and they're going to want to figure it out because that's what I do when I read these kinds of books. I say, okay, what's it going to be? You know, who is, I think I got it. I figured it out. And a lot of times I do figure it out. And most of these readers are pretty good at figuring it out. And my job is to make you think you figured it out and then, pull the rug out from Monday again. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Uh, Sir, I don't know how you found your way into our uh, studio, but I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Okay, I'll get out of here. <laughs> you knew I was talking about you. You guys were just talking about how great it was last couple of weeks. You could have just told me not to show up today. <laughs> it, was, it was so nice and quiet, and everything went, night, you know, real smooth. And tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thursday at one o'clock rolled around. I was actually in one o'clock. It was actually in y'all's time zone, and I was like, "Man, it's amazing." <laughs> So you were only in jail for two weeks. So what, what did you do? Uh, what I do in jail? That's a great question. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that's not where you were? No. I, was, oh. I, I, uh, I uh, drove 2,000 miles. So I did figure that out. But, you know, it, actually what's funny. So I, was, uh, so I went to Siesta Key, um, which, uh, you know, hopefully I can say as an air, but you were looking at houses down there. And I made a joke on the way back. I could have visited all your rental homes. <laughs> you because probably I drove, could have. I was there. I drove through North Georgia and like Gatlinburg would have been a little bit of a detour. But, um, but you know, I was like, man, could have just gone to all JD's rental homes, just stayed a night in each one of them. <laughs> we kind of, every time we go somewhere, I think we load up the Zillow app at this point and, and start pricing out real estate. And the, the market's getting a little crazy because interest rates are, are starting to soar through the roof. And I think we're going to start seeing some foreclosures and panic selling and probably prices and stuff coming down, um, which is, you know, typically if you're in, in the market to buy, that's when you want to do it. Um, so we're just, we're really keeping our eye open. Um, Siesta Key is awesome. I, when we first moved from Chicago to Florida, we, we rented a house on Siesta Key. Um, I think we were there for about three months. We were there for the summer and then we moved a little further um, south to a, a town called Englewood. Um, but at the time it was fun, like, you know, Midnight Pass Road, which is the main road down the center of the key was like, there was nothing, you know, there's just a couple houses here or there. You could ride your bikes. You know, we were little kids. We rode our bikes everywhere. Um, it wasn't really a touristy kind of place. And, you know, I, I hadn't been there in a really long time. Um, I think the first time back was probably about three or four years ago. And I was just completely amazed at how much all of it has, has built up over the years. Um, and, and like every house that I, that I remember, you know, is gone and like they've been, you know, bulldozed and McMansions and stuff put up in their place. So it's, it's totally different than, than how I remembered it. It was cool. I'd never been there. Um, <clears throat> the area I was in seemed like it was a little 
Um, I mean, it definitely was like touristy or whatever, but it wasn't like the further south you went on the island. It definitely like you started seeing way more hotels and condos than where I was at. Um, but it's like the condo was a, like a three minute walk down to the beach and a four minute walk down to all these restaurants and stuff. Um, it was it was nice. I do. I, do, I, I want to tell one story, um, you know, before you know, because I think it was it was funny. So one day I'm sitting on the beach and this guy comes walking out and he's got someone filming him. So I already know something's kind of up. But this guy comes walking out and he's like hunched over and he's carrying a telescope. <laughs> and he sets up right in front of me at the beach and he's kind of talking to this cameraman and the camera guy just leaves. And I'm like, this is really weird. Like, but, but I'm sitting there thinking this is some awkward dude who probably has a YouTube channel with like four followers or something. And this guy starts looking in the telescope and up at the sun and, and he would come out, he would look at it. Then he'd come out and he would be like, no one's gonna be able to see me, but like he'd cover his eye and be like doing this type of thing. And I'm like, what is, what is this dude doing? And he comes over and and he, I, I saw him talk to somebody else walk by. Then he comes over to me and he's like, Hey, do you want to see a planet that's 98 million miles away or whatever? And he's talk. I'm like, you talking about the sun? He's like, yeah. I'm like, no, dude, you need to go look in a mirror. Like your eye is bloodshot. Like this is, you need to quit looking up in this telescope. And he's like, Oh no, it's fine. I've been doing it for a while or whatever. And he goes back at this point. I realized too, that he has a clear fanny pack on full of Cheez-Its. <laughs> and so it's still not clicking on me. I'm like, this is weird, but this dude just seems really awkward. So like I go out in the water and I'm just kind of watching this dude and I see someone go up and talk to him. And then the guy comes out to me in the water and uh, or the guy comes in his girlfriend or his wife or girlfriend, wherever come out. And I'm like, I'm going to find out what he said to this guy. I'm like, Hey man, did you see that whole thing? That's kind of weird. He goes, Oh yeah. He goes, the whole thing is a prank. My son watches that guy's YouTube channel. And apparently it's this guy. I think it's like vlog creations or Ross creations or something, but he's got like 3 million YouTube followers. And so and, and and when they finally left, there was a guy who was in the water who was one of his plants. And he, as they were leaving, he looked back and he was like, yeah, I work for him and stuff. Like, you guys nailed a lot of the stuff y'all were talking about. And then we saw a person in a beach chair who had set up next to me and a couple other people. They all got up and left. They were all like plants that were part of his team who were probably definitely filming. So now I'm waiting for the YouTube video to get uploaded because he uploaded some other ones they were in the exact same place where he was like pulling stuff out of his beach bag. Like it was pull, it was called like pulling impossibly big stuff out of my beach bag. And it, the end gag was he pulled a woman out and <laughs> it was in the exact same spot where I'd been sitting every day. And so like, I know I'm going to be on there looking like an idiot on this dude's YouTube channel at some point. So um, unfortunately I had just put down my copy of uh, Dracul. So JD, I wasn't reading your book, but um, <laughs> I'm just joking. But, uh, but yeah, so I have no idea what's going to happen with that. So I love that. I was just thinking like, please tell me you walked up to the telescope and be like, you know what I see? Empty bodies. The novel <laughs> by Zach O'Hannon. <laughs> that would have been awesome, man. Hey, yeah, just look at this telescope and look dead south. Just look dead south and you'll find what you're Which looking direction? for. Which direction? Dead south. Dead south, man. <laughs> So no, it was, but, uh, yeah, he was, he was, uh, he had like a, the, the guy who was sitting next to me, like knew the whole gag. He's like, yeah, he's totally got a contact in to make it look like that. He was offering people Cheez-Its 
Like it was, it was, it was so funny, man. And I, I totally fell for it. You said telescope and like, I, I, there, there, I don't know if it's still there, but there used to be a nude beach at the very Northern tip of Siesta key. Now um, you tell so, me when I'm home. <laughs> God, well, I, I've, I've only went there one time we were 15 and like, you know, it was like the thing that all the kids talked about when we, when we first moved to, to the key, they're like, you need to go to the, the, the nude beach. We'll ride our bikes up there. And we rode our bikes up and we like scrambled over the, the top of this hill and look, and, and it's like nothing but like 70 to a hundred year old, big old fat. <laughs> guys walking oh, okay. around all, all waiting for like you know one one hot chick to show up which you know never does um but it, yeah it's you know I, i'm 51 now and i still can't get that out of my head like once i <laughs> mitch was burned in my my brain like it's it's there forever um i don't know if that's still going on up up there you were in the, the fun part of of siesta key like you know where the all the, the cool stuff happens like when you head south like it gets really quiet and there's you know small beaches and stuff that way like turtle beach and stuff um but yeah, you get um what we used to call key fatigue so like you know, anytime you need to get something, you have to leave the key in order to get it. And if you're on the yeah. southern end of the, the key, you have to basically drive for like 15, 20 minutes before you can get to the bridge to get off the island. And then half the time you end up ha having to backtrack on the mainland to get to, you know, like Walmart or get gas. So it's like you, know, you forget one thing and you've got to go through this giant trek in order to, to, to get wherever you need to go. Yeah, I could see how it was like that. But uh, it was a good trip. It was a nice getaway. I was gone for basically two weeks because I went and saw my parents beforehand. Um, and dropped my daughter off with them, who is still gone. She's coming back in a few days. So she'll have been gone like three weeks by the time I finally see her. So, um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a good vacation. So especially from you two. So, but, uh, but no, I'm, I'm glad to be back though. Well, I'll, uh, I'll tag team on that little thing and that I'm heading on vacation tomorrow as we're recording this. So, uh, I'm hoping you two can hold it down next week and don't screw everything up in, in the one week, uh, the one episode of the show I'm not on. Uh, I, have, I only I, hosted 150 episodes <laughs> of the career author. I think it'd be okay. And JD's kind of smart. so As long as I don't have to take on any added responsibility, I'm totally fine with it. No, you just show up and talk. That's all. I, I, I don't remember seeing your vacation request form submitted, though. <laughs> I, I, I feel you need to do that and, and get it signed off by everybody. My assistant was supposed to send it to your assistant yesterday. I'll see what I can do. And yeah, somebody dropped the ball <laughs> what do we got anything happening in the publishing world uh jd i know you saw something as we were coming on the air right yeah i, I saw the, the the press release but i haven't had any time to look at this but apparently tiktok is um creating a book club um i have no idea how this is going to work i don't know if authors are going to be able to submit their titles or how they're curating everything i i think unless i misread it the very first title they're going to select is jane austen um you know, but I, I haven't heard anything beyond that, but that, that could be big. You know, they, they've obviously moved you know, a serious number of books using TikTok. Um, and if they take that group and they, they point them all in one direction, that, that could be a, a you know, ginormous force, you know, that kind of on par with like Reese Witherspoon and you know, some of the other big uh, book clubs that are out there, they, they can make or break a novel for sure. I, I know you said you just saw it, but uh, are you thinking about tie-ins to best of book talk and like, you know, how's that going for you? Is that a, you know, a, a possible Something I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, I, I think they're booking already into 2023 for the, the the slots to promote books on that. Um, and we're definitely seeing like certain titles do better than other ones. Um, that's the kind of thing I'm paying attention to. I'm trying to figure out what what is it working well for and what isn't. Um, you know, sci-fi and horror don't seem to do very well. Romance, domestic thrillers, those kind of things seem to do really good. Um, you know, so I'm really keeping an, an eye on that. Uh, I keep sneaking my own books in there just to to see what happens. And it, you know, I am seeing bumps. 
bumps, um, you know, in, in the, the sales whenever I do it. Um, and some of those titles, you know, particularly, uh, she has a broken thing where her heart should be. I stick that one in there the most. Um, and it's just like anything else, you know, the more touches you have, the more, you know, you know, more it impacts the, the sales side. So I, I think that particular title has been out there quite a few times. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting, but you know, it's a, a very different model from what, what they're doing for sure. Everyone thinks it's a romance. That's why it's selling. <laughs> that that's probably part of it. Um, <laughs> it probably has something to like. I've I've talked to somebody who's pretty into the book talk thing, and yeah, she was saying like it's pretty much dominated by romance. Surprise, surprise. You know, like it's not very much of a shocker. But uh, so I, that might really have. I was making a joke, but it might actually have something to do with it. No, no, it definitely, I mean, every, anytime they, you know, they, they try to stagger the, the genres on these emails that go out and they keep it to about four or five different titles, try to keep each one in a, a different genre. Um, and then I go back and just look at the data behind it and, and romance is always a clear cut winner. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it's just one of those things. Um, but I, it, it does seem like it's expanding. So we'll see where it goes. I, I just, the idea of TikTok actually organizing it and creating something and, and pointing all those people in one direction. Um, I can just imagine what that's going to be like. Or yeah. people are going to reject it because it was like different when it was just an organic thing from the community that kind of grew out. Like, you know what I'm saying? I, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, it's, I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Like, it'd be curious to see, you know, with, with TikTok getting behind it, like what it will, it'll probably be bigger. Like you're pro probably what you're saying, but, um, It'll be interesting to see how it goes. No, nah, it could be exactly like you're saying, you know, like everybody loves the underground band that nobody knows about until everybody knows about them. And then, you know, you kind of move on. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. What's going on with you, Jay? Um, I'm just, uh, I'm kind of in, I'm kind of into moving into X speed right now. This is the, the blessing and the curse of vacation, right? It's like you get, you get the time off, but like the week before and the week after, it feels like twice as much work um, to clear the decks. But, uh, but yeah, not, not, not bad. Um, that, that's what I've been working on. I've been um, piddling around with a, a proposal. I'm not really ready to talk about openly just yet, a book proposal, but I think I, I started some preliminary research on that. Uh, so that's about it from this side. Cool. All right. Well, let's we'll take care of some business and then uh, we'll get to our guest. Want to uh, give a wonderful shout out to our friends over there at Kobo Writing Life. They empower you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. As we always say, going wide or going into KU is a book-by-book -book decision. And if you're going to go wide, then Kobo Writing Life has to be in your plans. Uh, you get to set your price. There's promotional opportunities every month. Uh, and all of that without any type of exclusivity clause. So if you're interested, hit the link in the show notes or go there directly by going to Kobo Writing Life dot com jd who do we got today all right this one's gonna be fun we've got david ellis coming on he's um one of james patterson's co-authors um honestly one of my favorites I, just mainly his writing style he's got a great sense of humor um and the stories just always move um and i've, I've obviously you know working with jim i've read a lot of his his co-authored books but like the ones with, with david I, I never miss um he's got a new solo book coming out called look closer uh, it actually released july 5th um so here he is david ellis Are you friends with any self-worshipping jagoffs? Um, <laughs> I seem to I seem to collect a lot of those. Jay. <laughs> I seem to gravitate towards those people. A lot of writers seem to fall into that category. Um, you know, it's funny. I um, I have you know, being a writer can be quite isolating. You know, and you tend to not spend a lot of time with other people when you're writing. You're just kind of sitting by yourself, but. Uh, 
But then you find yourself going once in a while to, you know, these writers conventions or something. And these guys are hilarious when we all get together because we're all, I mean, there's plenty of nice people in there. There, Yeah. There's some Jag house, too. <laughs> but, but, but we're all, we're all kind of wired also to, you know, pitch our book or plug our stuff. And, and we all get together. We're like, why don't we all just shut up and just talk about something else? You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel yeah, like I have to, I have to clue the, the listener in here because, uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh and I, until I read your book, I could have sworn only Pittsburghers called other people Jagoffs. And then I realized you're from Chicago. So is this something people in Chicago say as well? Yeah, I've been, I've been using that word my entire life. <laughs> uh, and I got a couple of buddies of mine from the South side of Chicago. I'm not from the South. I grew up in the suburbs, but the, the, you know, South siders, you know, White Sox fans, you know, the, the stereotypical D's, Dems and Dozers. It is a stereotype, but they do have a pattern to their speech, and that's a favorite of the South Side. <laughs> so I find myself using that quite a bit. <laughs> I, I take it I used that in the book. That's what brought that. Yes, up. I, yes, you did. It that, caught my that attention. Right. <laughs> I, I, it'd be interesting if there are parts of the country that weren't familiar with that word because I didn't realize that that was anything unique. I think it's very regional. Yeah, like I said, I, I didn't realize anyone outside of Western Pennsylvania used that. So when I when I saw it, I was like, oh my goodness, I, that was like yeah. um, taking me back to my childhood. Oh, that is hilarious. <laughs> well, uh, let's, let's talk about look closer, man. I could not put this thing down. Uh, this was, this was so good. I was so into Simon and Vicky's story. I have to be careful cause we don't want to spoil anything for, for f- folks who haven't read it, but, yeah. uh, can you give them sort of like the high level synopsis? Like what, what's the story about? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I've uh, the reviews have been really nice so far, real positive, and a lot of them have said, "Go in blind," because if I try to tell you something, it's probably my synopsis is probably not going to be accurate. I mean, I could I could give you the most basic facts about some of these characters to set it up, but some of those facts will end up not being true, and so you're like, "Well, you know, what is my pitch for this book?" And being honest, you know, I mean, it basically revolves around. Um, not really so much a love triangle, but a love square. There's really four players. There's a, a husband and wife, Vicky and Simon. And then there are uh, each of them are involved in an extramarital affair in some way, shape or form. I'll say it that way. One of them is murdered. All of them are suspects and all of them are um, have different motives. Uh, and those motives change over time. Uh, but, you know, you're right. Um, you know, it's one of those books where the ground shifts under you every, you know, 30 pages or so. And it was really, that's really hard to write sometimes, but it's also really fun. It's the most fun I've ever had writing a book, um, you know, because you you sit there and sometimes you come up with your own surprises while you're writing. You know, I don't know how you are, Jay, but, you know, when I'm writing, I, um, I try to have some idea of what's going to be happening, but I'll just say, hey, wait a second, wouldn't this be awesome? And I could change something fundamental about the character when I'm on page 100 and say, you know, I'm going to have to make some other changes but it makes everything else so much cooler. And uh, that's the fun part for me when, cause I know I'm going to be playing a game with the reader. Right. I mean, I'm, I mean, the, you hope the book is more than just a whodunit. And I think it is, but that is part of it is, you know, what's going to happen and who did what to whom and why all of those are questions. But, you know, I, um, you know, it, I think of it as a game. I think, you know, the reader is going to sit there and they're going to want to figure it out because that's what I do when I read these kinds of books. I say, okay, what's it going to be? You know, who is, I think I got it. I figured it out. And a lot of times I do figure it out. And most of these readers are pretty good at figuring it out. And my job is to make you think you figured it out and then pull the rug out from under you again. Um, so it's, it's a ton of fun, but you know, 
I, it's so difficult for me to describe the book to people. Right. You know, people say domestic suspense. I don't know what you think. That's probably not a bad way to describe it. It's, it's a domestic book. Um, you know, this isn't an international, there's no hijackings or bombs going off. We're not saving the world or anything. So it's, you know, it's put in a little a little bedroom community of a suburb outside Chicago. But um, yeah, I tell you, I've never had so much fun writing. And I just said to myself, I'm going to write what I want to read. I love that. Yeah. So there's two things I want to follow up with on that that um, are fascinating to me. So this domestic thriller, domestic suspense, yeah. Um, it's a bit of a nebulous subgenre of thriller, but it does seem to focus on uh, domestic, meaning you know between two adults who have some type of relationship—a husband and wife or two spouses—and um, and there it's a focus on those relationships. So I think you're accurate in that, and I think your publisher will probably like to you know cleanly put that label on the book for you. Yeah. Um, but th- so the the related question to that is, um. How much of the story did you have before you started? So, for example, if you're saying, like, I want to be surprised, but, like, did you know how it was going to end, or was that a surprise, too? So, Jay, that's a that's a good question. I would say at, I knew the ending before I got to the ending, but I don't think I knew the ending at the very beginning of the book. Oh. I think when it started, it was going to be a little different. I'll tell you what I did with this book, which I have not done since my first novel, like 20 books ago, um, not counting the Patterson books, because those are very different. So of my own 10, this was the most like my first one line of vision in that I started with the character this time. And I often don't do that. I often think of some idea for a plot and say, okay, that's a good start. Now, how can I put more and more layers over that until I've got a whole baseball. But with this one, I thought of Simon first, which is interesting because I'm not even sure at the end of the book, you'd say that he's the principal character. He's certainly one of them. Uh, I think Vicky gives him a run for the money, but I thought about Simon and I thought that's who I want to write. You know, my wife kind of said to me, you know, when you wrote your first book, you fell in love with an idea for a character and then you built a story around him. And that book did quite well. It won the Edgar and it was, a really fun story. In terms of pure story, it was probably the most fun story I'd ever done. And she said it was probably fun because you had your character first. And I thought that's a, my wife's very smart and she has, she knows me better than I know myself. And so I did that. I, I hadn't written one of my own books for a long time. I took like seven years off of writing my own books and wrote with Jim Patterson and, and was a judge. And when the pandemic hit, my wife's like, if you're ever going to get back into it now, you have a little bit more time. And I said, yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this character and I started developing it and I started writing it. And he was a a little too dark at first, Jay. You know, I had to change some things about him. He's pretty dark anyways. Um, I like my characters twisted. You know, they're not interesting to me if they're not twisted, because I think we're all kind of twisted. Even if we don't do things twisted, we think things twisted. Um, and so I, you know, I started developing this character and thinking, what kind of mayhem could this guy get into? You know, a guy who, who holds grudges, who has a, probably an oversized sense of fairness, a guy who in his real life is probably socially a little geeky. He's kind of a law geek and that's me. I'm a law geek. Um, the kind of stuff that he talks about, about the law in the book is the stuff that I think, uh, he was expressing my own opinions. And so that all those things were fun for me. And I thought, where can I go with this? You know, where can I mix, you know, revenge and obsession and greed and betrayal and uh, 
it started to just kind of crystallize and I had the working bones of a story. And then the big surprise came. It wasn't how I started the book. What I ended up doing was not how I started. So it took me it took me over a year to write this because I kept changing things. I kept deciding I kept falling in love with new ideas, you know. Love that. Uh, and you get bonus points for me for including uh, Metallica in your book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the book I just finished, the, the second book, and it's not a sequel, but it's my second book uh, since I'm kind of coming back, I guess. Um, I've got Rage Against the Machine in there. And uh, <laughs> my editor read the first draft. She's like, Rage, you're a rage guy? I'm like, I'm totally a rage guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she's like, you don't seem like one. You know, I'm kind of this sort of, you know... I don't know. I'm seemingly just a very like straight laced sort of guy. And I am a straight laced guy, really, which is probably why I like writing about people who aren't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of my vacation, my walk on the wild side every day, you know? Right. Right. You know, I, I'm sure as a judge, you you've seen some some really crazy stuff come in front of you. Are, are there yeah. lessons about either the law or procedures that that you've learned in the courtroom that have then transferred to your your fiction? You know, um, yeah, so I get I'm on the Illinois Appellate Court in in the first district in the first district is is all of Cook County, Illinois, which is Chicago. So I get every criminal and civil appeal out of Chicago. So I get all the crime. I get some pretty interesting civil stuff, but I get a lot of crime and some pretty bad crime, um, really bad crime. So, yeah, I see lots of things. You know, I've never mimicked anything exactly, but you certainly get ideas. And, you know, there's a lot of problems in the system. There's a lot of flaws, you know, the, the the old saying about the system of justice in America is it's the worst in the world with the exception of everybody else. <laughs> and that's probably true, you know, and that's our way of saying it's probably the best there is, but it still has lots of problems. And so those problems are really interesting to me. And those problems are places where I can, you know, you know, poke some holes. The, the, the system of justice is an honor system. You assume the judge is going to be honorable. You assume the police are going to be honorable. You assume that the lawyers are going to follow the rules of ethics. They'll push the envelope and they're supposed to push the envelope, but there is there are lines and they're not supposed to cross them. And witnesses are supposed to tell the truth. And so I've got a lot of people there I can play with when I want to monkey around with that system. And I, I know I see injustice. You know, I see people who didn't get fair trials. And I think, you know, what, you know, what about their backstories? You know, what you know, can I imagine somebody who's innocent who's being accused of a crime? Can I imagine someone who's guilty who gets off? And I've seen both of those, and both of those are interesting. Simon talks about that a little bit, how the law is set up to protect the innocent. And in doing so, sometimes it goes too far and protects the guilty. That's, uh, yeah, I, I can only imagine some how some of those... Uh, how some of those the, the details of those crimes probably just sort of get suffused into some of your storytelling fabric, whether you like it or not, and show up on the page in probably very different ways. I think that they do. And and I also, in a, in a more rudimentary way, I get ideas, you know, yeah. like I talk a little bit, and I definitely talk in this book about the technology where you can track people by their cell phones. And it's a little more intricate, I think, than some people even know. And I learned all about it because I've had cases. You know, I had a yeah. case that it ended up being a famous criminal case, I didn't know it was famous. Like I, I got this appeal from this murder. And after it was done, several people said, oh, you had that case. And I'm like, oh, you know about that? And they said, oh yeah, it was in the newspapers. Remember 18 months ago, this guy, this guy basically 
uh, killed a woman and drove her about, uh, I don't know, 30 miles to a remote location or at least a remote town and buried her basically behind a movie theater. And it was a big famous case because they couldn't find her. And then, you know, of course, that's that's a guy who's trying to make it difficult to catch him. And the way they caught him was they tracked his cell phone movements and they took him all the way to that movie theater on that day in question. And he was dead to rights. And so, of course, his whole appeal was about attacking that attacking that technology. And I went through it all and I thought, OK, this is something to use. I mean, you know, this is a really interesting technology. And of course, it could be manipulated, which is what I find interesting, because that's what I want to do is manipulate it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so you, I mean, you talked uh it talked about the the storytelling process at the high altitude. What about mechanically? Like, what's it? What's your what's your writing session look like? Is it in a certain place, a certain time of day, a certain process? Yeah. So I try to get up at three thirty every morning um, and get up in about three and a half hours of writing uh, till seven. At seven, my kids get up. My kids are now 10, 12, and fifteen, so they're getting a little older. But I've been doing this forever. And, um, and that's when my wife wakes up, she's a lawyer also. And, and every, you know, the, the house wakes up, I have to write when the house is asleep. And so that's when I do it. And, you know, uh, you probably are familiar with Scott Turow. He's obviously a great writer and he's a lawyer from Chicago who I know. And he always says he, and I, and I think this is a good way of putting it. He tries to push the ball forward every day. You know, that day may be research and that's not the most fun day for a writer because that's just the the nuts and bolts of looking up something and you don't actually get words down. Sometimes I'll edit um, and sometimes I'll try something fresh, but um, yeah, that's the time period I do it. I have a place I go, I have to have coffee. And um, I've lately been listening to music and that's funny because I never did. I was always a quiet space that I was in with just me and my thoughts. And I, you know what I found, Jay, is, um, you know, the internet is extremely distracting because it's so easy to look at. And um, and I'm a news junkie. I'm a law junkie. So there's plenty of me to look, plenty for me to look at. So I realized if I put on some headphones and play something that's pleasing to me, um, it won't distract me. I won't even listen too much to the music because it just puts me in a kind of a happy place. And I stop checking the internet and I get more lost in the little world. So that's actually something I... Now, I've been writing since the late 90s, and I just discovered this maybe six months ago. Uh, so I've got like a playlist of totally, I think you would probably call it mellow-ish music. I've also got one of the Foo Fighters where they play their really hard stuff, and sometimes I want to get into that mood. But usually I'll just play the mellow stuff and get lost and just, I'm, I'm only kind of hearing it, you know, and uh, and because music inspires me. And I, and I thought, you know, have a little inspiration around you, even though it has really nothing to do with what I'm writing, just hearing something artistic kind of gets, gets you stirring a little bit. Sometimes, sometimes when I'm up that early, I need to be stirred, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know that uh, some writers tell me they, they love listening to music, but it has to be instrumental because the singing or the lyrics will distract them. That doesn't sound like that's a problem for you. It doesn't seem to be. No, I've tried that too, but that, you know, that's not really my thing. Cause I, unless I was really into classical music, I mean, once in a while I'll listen to some classical music. My kids all play musical instruments. So I love listening to the violin, the piano, the, the cello, but you know, when I'm writing, it doesn't really work for me. I think I need something that I already know. I don't want to discover new music. I wouldn't listen to like a radio station. It's gotta be something that's familiar to me and comforting. That's kind of, that kind of becomes my comfort zone. So that's kind of the, that's, that's me. It's three 30 in the morning. I'm forcing myself out of bed. And once, 
once I'm actually awake, I have no trouble getting up, you know, because I want to write. This is my vacation. The analogy I always use is when I'm trying to wake up my kids because it's time to go to school, you know, they roll over and cover their pillow over their head and say no. But if I'm waking them up because we have to get on an airplane and go to Walt Disney World, they pop right up, right? And so the way I always say it is I'm going to Disney World every morning when I wake up. So I, you know, I physically have to wake up, but once I do, I pop up and I'm ready to go. So it's, it's, uh, you know, I'm lucky, you know, this is great stuff. I mean, it's hard writing books. It's hard having deadlines, but you always have to sit back and say, but what am I doing? I mean, I'm just making believe I'm just having fun, you know, and I'm playing with the reader's thoughts, you know, my kind of books, I'm playing with the reader's thoughts. I'm trying to look at things from their point of view and say, how can I manipulate this? I mean, that's what I'm doing, right? I'm manipulating the book. I'm manipulating the facts and the atmosphere to make you think one thing when something else is true. That's just fun. I just like it. And you're not doing it alone. Uh, you happen to have co-written with uh, some guy we may have heard of, uh, James yeah. Patterson, I believe. Uh, James Patterson <laughs> has been has been amazing. And I, I didn't know if it was going to be something that was going to be a great combination or not. I was skeptical when it first came up. He He knew my agent well. And they were having lunch and he had read my first book, Line of Vision, and had given me a blurb for it. And I didn't know him. You know, he didn't know me, but he loved that book. And when he loves something, he remembers it. So he remembered it like 10 years later. And they said, hey, maybe he could be a co-writer. And my agent asked me and I, I said I wanted to talk to Jim first because I wasn't sure I knew how to do this. And I so I'm, I'd be interested in J.D. Barker's story about this. But um, the way it worked for me, you know, we didn't know each other. We'd never spoken in our lives. And I called him. And I said, look, I'm flattered you would consider me, but I don't know how to write a James Patterson book. And he said, you know, I, I don't want you to write a James Patterson book. I want you to write a James Patterson, David Ellis book. I want you to bring your skill set. I'll bring mine. And hopefully what we do will be something really cool and really unique. And that's how he, you know, he's got different. I mean, J.D. and I, uh, J.D., I think, was actually born pretty close to where I was born. But but he grew up in a whole different place. And he's got a, he's a completely different person than me. He's got a bunch of us. And we all have very different backgrounds. We bring different skill sets and our books are different. And I think it's, you know, so the only other thing I would say about Jim is, you know, every time I talk to the guy, I learn something new. And I I keep thinking I figured it all out, Jay. I mean, I've been writing forever. You'd think I know this stuff. And then he'd say, well, here's here's the problem with these pages. Here's what we need to see because otherwise, blah, blah, blah. And I'll and I'll have to digest it usually. I'll say, okay, Jim. And then I'll think about it. I'll be like, oh my God, he's right. Like, why didn't I see that? He sees things that I don't see, and he knows so much about the business, you know, and and he always cares only about one thing, and that's the reader. That's all he cares about is the reader. He always says, we're not trying to win awards, Dave. It's it's not about, you know, did we write the best prose? You want it to be good, but he said the story has got to be really involving. They have to feel enmeshed in the story in every chapter, and don't waste a chapter. If there's a chapter in there, that doesn't involve them, that doesn't do something with an exclamation point on it. It doesn't scare them. It doesn't thrill them. It doesn't um, make them weep. It doesn't, it isn't incredibly romantic. If it doesn't have some powerful emotion in it, then get rid of it and find some other way to give us the information you want to give us. Because it's every, every page, but every chapter particularly has to pack a wallop. And that's, that sounds easy. It's really hard. He's pretty good at it, and he's made me really good at it, I think. And, uh, you know, when I wrote Look Closer, I, he was kind of sitting on my shoulder the whole time. I was thinking, now, what would Jim do here, you know? 
And uh, the result, I think, is is a series of chapters in that book that don't really ever let off the gas in their own unique ways. At least that's what I'm shooting for, Jay. So uh, you nailed it, man. Uh, and and I was I was going to ask you, like, you know, is there a little Patterson voice in your ear when you're writing your own book? And and you you just answered that. Uh, what? Let's talk for a minute about. Uh, the Patterson, I think I call this the Patterson approach. I know he's not the only one that, that does it, but those yeah. very short, succinct chapters, uh, yeah. and and what that does for pacing. Sort of what yeah. what what have you learned from that? What what are you applying to your own writing in terms of the length of the chapter and how you're pacing the story? Yeah, so his rule is always twelve hundred words. That's the that's the number. It's twelve hundred words, and and there's a genius to it. And I think you hit it, Jay. I think you said it yourself. It's it's the pacing. You know, it makes you not waste words. You know, it makes you not take three paragraphs to describe the color of the couch in the room because who gives a shit what the color of the couch in the room is, right? It's brown. Okay, you want to say more than brown? It's the color of tea. It's the color of chocolate, whatever. You put a little finer point on it than maybe brown, but, you know, but then let's move on. Let the reader's imagination do a lot of that work because they're good at that. They'll they'll take what you don't tell them and fill it in for themselves. But he really wants the pace. He wants you to feel like there's a staccato feel to it. And, and you can't get bored with a staccato feel. If you were watching a show that, um, you know, every scene was like two minutes long instead of these some long drawn out scenes, it's hard to take your eyes off it because it keeps changing. It doesn't automatically mean it's going to be good, but it, that's still up to the reader, uh, to the writer to make it good. But that does force you to keep a pace. And people read his books fast because of that. And there's also that feeling that, you know, okay, just one more chapter before I go to bed. It's just going to be three pages anyways. Okay, oh, maybe one more. Oh, that was really good. And there's kind of a cliffhanger. Okay, one more. And that's what he wants. That That is exactly what he's wanting the reader to do. You know, I'm out of time, but oh, maybe just one more. Um, I do that now, Jay. I mean, I count the words in my chapters. I don't always stick to 1,200. But if I'm getting up to near 2,000, I'm asking myself, does this really all need to be one chapter? And is this really all still interesting? Or am I slowing down? Because... And, and it's it's so important to do that, I think, in any book you write. I think in any kind of book. When I write my judicial opinions, I think about these things. I write short paragraphs in my judicial opinions, in part because it's hard on the eyes to read a long paragraph, and in part because, you know, if you're writing a paragraph that has 11 sentences in it, you know, is that eighth sentence, is that a good, important sentence? Because the reader's starting to get tired, and, you know, they're, they might even glaze past it because they're reading fast. So I, I I always emphasize that staccato pace in my judicial opinions too. It just is is more fun to read. It's just more enjoyable. I think the reader likes it. If they didn't like it, Patterson wouldn't be where he is. And I, you know, look closer is not the shortest book you're going to read. Um, but I've had many people. Uh, it's gotten a ton of reviews already, and and a lot of the reviews have said it's longer than most books in the genre, but it didn't read long. It went really fast. And I fit, thought that's one of the nicest things they could have said. It meant they enjoyed it. And it meant that, that I kept the pace up. So that's a really, I don't know how we came up with that idea. A lot of people are doing it now, but it's there's a brilliance to it. And I, I didn't see it at first. I do now. Yeah, that's wonderful. I love how you've incorporated that into all aspects of your writing because it's certainly yeah. true. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, you've been doing this writing thing for a long time. So 
I, I think a good way to kind of wrap up our conversation is I would love to know what, what you, David, personally or professionally or for the industry, what are you really excited about right now? I really, what, what I'm excited about for myself is that I'm writing what I've always wanted to write. Uh, you know, when I, when I wrote my first book, Line of Vision, it was, you know, I was a lawyer and there's some courtroom drama in it. The book ends with some Perry Mason moments in the courtroom. It's sort of the dramatic twist comes in a courtroom. And, you know, my publisher at the time said, okay, legal thrillers are hot. Uh, and I was, at, you know, I was at Penguin. I still am Penguin Random House. And they said, okay, so that makes you the legal thriller writer, Dave. So all your books should have that in it. And I was a good boy. I did what I was told. I was very happy to, you know, they gave me a, you know, after I won the Edgar, I uh, I was a small fish in a huge pond. I became a slightly bigger fish and they gave me a two book deal. And I was, you know, trying to meet their expectations. And I loved all those legal thrillers I wrote, but I looked back at Line of Vision and I thought what I thought was special about that book really had nothing to do with the law or a courtroom. It was him. It was the character, Marty. And it, the psychology of him, he was the most twisted character I'd written. And I thought, I want to get back to that. You know, when I came back, I, I was gone from writing my own books for a while. And Penguin, you know, uh, it's now it's Penguin Random House. They, I had a two-book deal that I kind of walked away from for a while. I took kind of my a little sabbatical, if you want to call it that, of like six or seven years. And uh, and I I told them, you know, this is what I want to write now. And they they were happy because that's kind of the hot thing now. But I didn't do it because it was the hot thing. I did it because this is what I want to write. I mean, the law will always have a place in my books and crime will always be in my books and probably murder because um, that's the most dramatic crime there is. But really, the, the psychological part, making you wonder what's going on with these crazy people, what are they going to do next and what really was their motivation? What am I missing? I think I get the, how these two people interact. What am I missing? That stuff is what moves me, Jay. That's what keeps me coming back. And so... I'm really excited that I'm back doing what I love the most. All right. As a uh, fellow Patterson co-writer, let's start with, with JD. Uh, th thoughts thoughts on David? I He was a fun guy, fun guy to talk to, but uh, some thoughts, some insights you had? Well, first off, there's Jagoffs everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, growing up near Chicago, like that was definitely one of the, the terms that I, I heard and I remembered. And, and it's funny because I probably haven't heard that word in you know a gazillion years. But or um, you didn't hear yeah. it in Pittsburgh? They say it in Pittsburgh all the time. No, no, I, I wow, didn't hear that. That's one. surprising. Okay. Um, I, I love the fact that he gets up every day at three thirty in order to write. You know, like, th this guy is a judge <laughs> and he's, he's getting up at three 30 in the morning. So like if anybody is out there right now and saying they just don't have the time and using that as an excuse, this guy is a judge. He's getting up at three 30 in the morning and he's pounding out books. Um, so take that one off the table. Yeah, it's funny. I, uh, so I, I have a friend, this, this, uh, this was really interesting to me for like a personal reason. Cause one of my really good friends, uh, is, has written a couple of books and is really wanting to get into fiction and is about to be a judge. <laughs> and we, we've had a lot of conversations around like, and I honestly, I wish that I had done a little more research and known that you were talking to him because I'm like, one of the things that we've talked a lot about that would have been interesting to talk to him about is, is around like, um, 
you know, she's been kind of worried about like some ethics type stuff of like running an author business while also being a judge and stuff like that, which has been uh, like, we've had extensive conversations about it. Cause she's like, I don't know what I'm really allowed to do. And like all this stuff is public record and sort of thing. And um, so that's been a really interesting thing to hear from her and for us to kind of try to puzzle out together in the conversations we've had. So um, it was really interesting to hear him, kind of talk about that and how it has influenced his writing and, and such. And um, yeah, that was, that was really, and the fact that he's like still, it's not like he's a retired judge. Like from what I could tell, he's still active, which was super, super interesting. So. Yeah. It's funny because I've mentored a lot of lawyers that wanted, you know, want to become writers. Um, and almost, you know, like most of the time people don't even have to tell me, like if I pick up the manuscript and I start reading it, like, oh, this guy's a lawyer, you know, you can just, you can tell just because they include so much detail and the writing is just terribly dry. Um, and it's so hard to, you know, and they have to, I mean, that's, that's how you write a legal brief. It's, it, you know, it's supposed to be like that. Um, but you have to basically train that out of them. Uh, I get the feeling that David has the opposite problem. Um, after reading his, you know, his, this, thrillers i bet you his legal briefs actually read a lot like a legal thriller um you know probably short <laughs> short concise you know concise a lot of white space you know to, to help with pacing and, and things like that um you know because he, he had mentioned you know just working with jim you know like you, you tend to hear his voice you know because he does he, he calls up you know to, to review everything that you write everything that he writes you know how to make it better i mean he's totally critical on his, his own work just as much as he is on somebody else's um he'll tell you everything that's wrong and after you get over the fact that you're angry at him you realize he's right um, but those things get in your head, you know, so when you write a solo book, you know, you, you do have, you know, it feels like he's right there over your shoulder, you know, right after you type a sentence, you know, snapping his fingers or, you know, shrugging or sighing and like, uh, that needs to come out. This is why. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's weird how it, it dominates your, your thoughts. Like, I'm, I guess I'm glad I'm not the only one where, where that sort of thing is happening. Yeah, I could totally see that. And when, when he was talking about the 1200 word thing, you know, like I thought about you cause you've talked, but well, you both talked about that, but obviously, um, JD has worked directly with Patterson. So, uh, multiple times. So you guys talked about that, but, um, I thought that was really interesting too. Like, and, um, you know, he kind of, I, I felt like he kind of took a stand too, saying like that, no matter what genre you write, you know, the 1200 word thing should be something you should really think about. And, and, uh, and, and I, I tend to agree. I think that, there are some instances like I know an epic fantasy, you know, that can be kind of tough and that, um, you know, some of those authors will have like 3000 word chapters and stuff. And some can even do it where the pacing is still really good. Like Brandon Sanderson is a master of that. Like he can write really long chapters, but it doesn't feel he's not doing what David talked about where it's like, you know, you're spending four paragraphs describing the color of a napkin or something like that, you know? Um, so I don't know, like, what are you, what are y'all's thoughts on that as like a general rule of thumb, like over all different genres? You know, so I'm on um, book four, I think with, with Patterson and yeah. he's never once brought up like a specific number, you know, a word count for, for the chapters. Um, but we do always end up somewhere in that range, you know, like a thousand to, to 1400 words, you know, so it, it's definitely a, a target. Um, and you know, if a chapter gets you know submitted, if I write something that's long, you know, he tends to whittle away at it. So I think that that's always there. Um, I've actually seen the industry evolve or change and kind of 
move towards that over the years. And if you pick up, you know, and, and everybody knows that I'm a huge Stephen King fan. I'm a huge Dean Koontz fan. Uh, if you pick up any of their recent novels, you're going to see that Koontz's chapters have gotten much shorter than they used to be years back. Um, and Stephen uh, King, he's always done, you know, the, this thing where he, you know, like will take a chapter or a section and he names it something and then he starts his renumbering over, you know, so he'll have, you know, a chapter called The House and then you'll have, you know, one, two, three, four, five within that. And then the next one is called This and then you have one, two, three, four, five. Um, and, you know, I'm reading his latest right now, Fairy Tale, and those those sections in there are probably around that same, you know, same range, like a thousand to, to 1500 words. Um, you know, as a reader, I love that, you know, you can put down the book, you know, fairly easily when you need to at a, you know, it's always better to, to break it, you know, a chapter break or whatever. And so that makes that a little bit simpler. Um, and it does seem to make the story move a lot faster, regardless of the, the genre. I think this is one of those areas, I don't, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent, but it's related to what you guys are, are talking about. This is one of those tricky places when when I have had clients and I've said, like, you need to study the masterworks. Like, you need to read Poe or you need to read Lovecraft or Agatha Christie because it, as you start to go back in those masterworks, even though the storytelling is something you, sh you should study, we tend to forget that the audience has changed. The, re the way people read books has changed. The, uh, the entertainment options has changed. And so... You know, just because, you know, Jane Austen did X, Y, and Z in her novel doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work now in 2022 because, because just people have different, you know, behaviors around entertainment. So I think this is a good reminder that, you know, there might be historical or, or master uh, works examples that, that break this rule. But if you look at the general trend of, of entertainment consumption, it's definitely to, towards shorter, more concise units. Well, and <clears throat> I mean, I'm not like a psychologist or sociologist or whatever, but like, and I also don't want to make like a general blanket statement, but you know, people's attention spans have gotten shorter too. <laughs> I, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that, you know? Um, and, and so, and as you said, kind of the way they consume things and all that, um, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's, and, and the thing I really liked that he said about it was, <clears throat> you know, and I, th I, I don't, I think he said Patterson says to him specifically, but like, you know, it's not like we're not going to have good prose and stuff in there. It's just like the story is what people are coming for. Like, that's what really, really matters at the end of the day more than being like super flowery and stuff like that. Yeah. And that is a conversation I've had with Patterson before. Yeah. He's, you know, and, and he's, you know, spot on when it comes to that. I, I think the, the real takeaway is every chapter has to serve a purpose. Yes. Um, if it doesn't, you know, find some other way to communicate whatever information is in there, which is again, another conversation I've had with them. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, it's one of the reasons why I, I try to, you know, limit the amount of words that I write every day. I mean, I, I tend to do two to 3000, but you know, a lot of times that's multiple projects. Um, yeah. I, I find that if I, you know, the first thousand to 1500 words that I put out in the morning are usually clear and concise and then it starts to whittle you know I, I start to get wordy you know my brain starts to slow down um, and that's usually the next day when I review that material that's where the cuts tend to tend to be um, so yeah just you know make sure that whatever it is you're communicating you're, you're not you know just being overburdensome just making it wordy for the sake of, of being wordy um, I'm listening to um, not to go off on a totally different book because I think we're going to have this guy on but I've, I've got a, a, a an audiobook I'm listening to right now called The Narrator um, it's not not out yet but it's the the 
book itself is narrated by Scott Brick, um, who's probably one of the best audiobook you know narrators out there. Yeah. Um, and the the character in the book you know really goes into the mindset of a narrator. And I I've got the feeling that that Scott probably weighed in on a lot of this while while he was writing it. Um, but you know as a narrator, like you know they see these books over and over again, the same plot lines, the same story, the same structure. Um, so certain things really start to to irk them, you know, when they see them. And one of them is just the the info dumps, you know, just how you can take a paragraph describing a couch and you can whittle it down to two words and you should um it's as difficult as maybe when you're writing it you know the first draft i think it's totally fine to get out there and, and put all those words down on paper uh, but when you go back over it try to find those types of things try to describe it in the least number of words as possible it's funny because i'm actually the opposite where like my first drafts i tend to be more minimal and then in my edits i had that's when i go in and like add, add that sort of stuff typically but still without overdoing it. So that's, it's, it's interesting. So yeah. And Scott's yeah, had, amazing. Yes. Yeah, Scott's, Scott's awesome. Um, it, David had mentioned that he, he's as the author, he's manipulating the reader. Um, and again, I, I think that's another thing that you really have to have, you know, be conscious of, especially if you're writing thrillers, you know, where you have to have twists, you know, anytime I feel like I'm writing, you know, basically just following along and the story is moving a little too smooth. That's usually when it's time to put in some kind of twist and yank the rug out from underneath the character. Um, and it may make the, the story telling process a lot more difficult because you're painting yourself in a corner. Um, but you're also painting that reader in a corner, you know, and I think that's really important to throw your character in the most difficult situation as possible. And, and you know, nobody is, is going to be able to figure out how to get out of it quickly. Uh, I want to ask you a question related to that. And, you know, not to go into the pantsing versus plotting situation, but um, do you feel that more difficult to do now that you're plotting more than you have recently? Uh, well, I'm finding that, you know, I'm probably uh, a third of the way through that book right now that I'm working on that's got a, a full on outline. Um, yeah. And I am finding that I'm creating twists as I as I go. Um, and those new twists tend to take it away from the outline a little bit. But I am finding my way back to the, the original outline. Um, for the same reason, you know, like I, I thought the creative part of the process was over or would feel like it was over because I, I you know, basically did that when I created the outline. But that's not the case. As I'm writing, I'm still coming up with with material that's making it more interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I, I'm basically weighing those things. If I come up with some idea and I, you know, jerk the rug out from underneath my character and it puts them in a, a totally different place, you know, I, I look at it as objectively as I can. Is this making the story better? And if it is, then I, I run with it and then try to find some way to, to bring it back to my outline. So I'm not going too far off into the weeds. Nice. Yeah. It's, it's good to hear you say that because I, some, a lot of people who are very much in the, the pantsing camp will always say, Oh, you can't discovery ride if you plot. And no, you totally can't. It's just like taking a detour and then you, you find your way back to the main road, you know, or maybe the main road changes a little bit, you know? So it's, it's, it's good to hear you say that, you know, as someone who's been d diving more into that. All right. So uh, that was David Ellis. Uh, Look Closer is a fantastic book. Highly recommend it, especially if you like fast-paced thrillers. You will dig it. J.D., who's up next week? All right. Next week, we've got Catherine Calter coming on. She's the number one New York Times bestseller of 88 novels. That's unbelievable. Um, her latest is called The Reckoning, and it releases August 2nd. Excellent. Looking forward to it. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.